Ecclesiastes, which means Koheleth, the preacher. And this preacher has been talking about trouble. We got troubles right here in River City. We got troubles. Troubles everywhere. And uh, I sure see troubles all the time. I know you've got troubles. I know some of you have big troubles. I had trouble yesterday. Robert and I were traveling. Robert Sutton and I were traveling together visiting music candidates, music director candidates. And we were, uh, I've noticed a big difference when you're a silver or gold elite and you're not a silver or gold elite. Big difference. Big difference. You know, they used to, oh, Mr. Wilson, here, we got an extra seat in first class. We'll put you up there. What's your name? Yeah. Well, let's see if we got a seat for you. You know, it's a lot. I'm not an elite flyer this year, so I ended up back by the restroom. And I was uh, back there in the very back row of the plane yesterday. I'm sitting next to a 15-year-old kid. And I'm wanting to strike up some conversation with him, fool around with him a little bit, mess with him a little bit. So I see a, I see a guy four rows up. And this is a, one of those uh, 319s, um, Airbus you know, three on three seats on this side, three seats on this side. There are a lot, the thing is full. It was not an empty seat. Four seats up, and in, in the middle seat, there's a guy with a mohawk, and he's dyed it kind of an orangish red. I mean, it's it's a cool looking hairdo. I'm thinking about it, and uh, I'd have to kind of I'd have to paint my bald spot. I think if I did that. But so I said to the kid in front of me, I'm mean, uh, next to me. I said, Hey. I give you five dollars to go up and tell that guy that his hair is on fire. <laughs> and the little kid stutters a little bit, and he said, "What? Well, that'd be no problem. That's my brother-in-law." <laughs> I don't know why I do dumb things like that. It always happens to me. Every time I'm messing with somebody, I get caught. Troubles, troubles, troubles everywhere. And that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is talking about. It was just perfect. I was thinking about Ecclesiastes 9. Here it is, trouble all the time. You can't, can't talk about anybody. But if you look at Ecclesiastes 9, we're going to get this message again. You, can't, you cannot avoid your troubles. You've got to face them. They're everywhere. Life's uh, not a piece of cake. Let's look at verses 1 through 12. We'll read the whole thing, and then we've got some important lessons to hit us again today. In case you were thinking that you could walk out of here just real happy, forget it. Here we go again. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with a good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, and so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living, know what the, uh, the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. The grass withers and the flowers fall. 
Men too. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Okay, let's take a hard look at this. You can't escape your troubles. That's what you get in verses 1 through 3. You say, why is he beating me over the head with this? Well, don't you think maybe it's because we tend not to face the brutal facts. And you can talk to anybody, Christian, non-Christian, about uh, the way to live a successful life. And one thing is always you've got to face the facts, the hard realities, the brutal facts. And I find over and over again in life, dealing with people, 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 that we have an amazing ability to suppress reality. An amazing ability. And one of the ways in which we learn somewhere back there in this evil world is, uh, to cope with difficult times is just to pretend that they're not there. And, you know, there's a certain way in which it kind of gets you through just to pretend it's not there. Silver lining in every cloud, you know. Uh, it's not as bad as it appears, da 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 da, -da. Uh, but it ends up being dysfunctional because you're not facing reality. One of the first things you do when you go to AA <clears throat> is you learn how to introduce yourself. My name is Sandy Wilson. I'm an alcoholic. And that's not a bad start. And it'd be awfully good for a lot of folks if they'd learn to just get to know themselves, that you've got problems in your own life, your personality, you've got dysfunctions, every one of you have blind spots, and it needs to, those things need to be embraced. And you're not going to be effective in your workplace unless you know what your liabilities are, unless you know the liabilities of your own company or organization, and unless you are training people around you about what your liabilities are so that they can help you compensate for them. That's not what most men do. Most of the time, we spend enormous amounts of energy covering up the brutal facts about ourselves and our environment. Uh, I've studied human relations a little bit in my life, and some, most of the studies will show that in the work, the secular workplace, 70% of people's energy goes into image management. It's absolutely amazing how defensive people are. They don't want the real truth about themselves to come out. But well, we don't, don't want the truth about ourselves to come out, nor do we want the truth about our environment to come out. One big reason that guys can't solve their marriage problems is that they just simply won't face the fact that they've got a problem. We'd just rather pretend. Life seems to be a little easier that way. It's a temporary coping mechanism, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the long run. It doesn't really work for anybody else living around us. Our wives would be blessed if when they say, you know, we got problems, you say, yeah, we really do. What can we do to solve them? It's true in marriage. It's true in work. It's true in church life, too. It's true in relationships. That the reason a lot of relationships are not working uh, in the business place or in the community or in the church is because people are pretending about themselves. We've got to face our troubles. You can't escape them. And troubles come uh, to the wise and the foolish. And you'll notice that he's showing us that belief in God's sovereignty doesn't eliminate surprises in life. He says in verse 1, these things are in God's hands. That's good. I believe in the sovereignty of God. You know, whatever. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. We... God knows what's coming in the future. We don't know what's coming in the future. We don't know if the guy with red hair is the brother-in-law sitting next to us or whether he's just some stranger on the airplane. You never know. You get surprises everywhere, and God's in control. God whacked me yesterday. Uh, and so I'm with Koheleth. You know, God's in control, but I never know whether love or hate awaits me. Uh, what's going on? Now, let's, let's look at verse 1, and we're going to see, first of all, A, we can't control our, or predict our circumstances. You can't control or predict it. The only thing that you can predict is what's in the Bible. That's the part of the future that God reveals to you. What's not in the Bible, you don't know. The secret things, says Moses, belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So the things that are revealed, take them. Build your life on them. The things that are not revealed, you're going to get surprises. You can't control them. And if you're a control freak, you're going to be spending most of your time trying to control what is uncontrollable. And so much of the worry that comes, especially in economic times like this, or about your family, about your children, your grandchildren, worry, worry, worry about things you cannot control. It's good to be concerned about the things you can control. It's good to take responsibility and be active in trying to solve problems. That's all great. But when you start worrying about things beyond your control, you're wasting your energy and you're ceasing to look at the Lord and you're starting to look at the troubles. It's just exactly what happened to Peter when he was on uh, the, the Sea of Galilee 
And he said, Lord, can I walk out there too? Yeah, come on, Peter. And Peter took his eyes off the Lord, looked at the waves and the, and, and the storm, and began to sink. It's exactly what happens to men when you start worrying about things you cannot control. You start basing your life on them. You can't control them. And Kohelet is saying, look, you're living a life that's raging with problems and you can't control it. You've got to face the brutal facts. Stop pretending that you're in charge of all this stuff. And somehow we think that if we can just make enough money, if we can just be prestigious enough, if we can get enough servants, if we can afford enough medical care, that we can ward off the evils in life. And you're not. I mean, one of the, the finest uh, political leaders around, Jack Kent, you know, just died. And you know, cancer. And you, know, you think about it, all that work, all that library of knowledge, gone. And he couldn't control it. Uh, his political contacts couldn't keep his cancer off. His whatever money, resources he had, whatever church friendships he had, he had plenty of them. None of it. So we can't control it. We need to learn this. Because if you're going to live life wisely, you have to know what you can control and what you can't control. Secondly, we can't avoid the grave. He says, all share a common destiny in verse 2. And you'll notice that this destiny is regardless, verse 2, of whether you are righteous or wicked, whether you are good or bad, whether you are ritually clean or ritually unclean, whether you offer sacrifices or you don't, that is, whether you worship or you don't worship, whether uh, you're a good man or a sinner, whether you take oaths and keep them or you're afraid to take them. No matter what kind of life you live, we're all going to the grave. And this is obviously, uh, has obviously been mentioned before, but Koheleth continues to stress it because one of the routes to wisdom is to keep dealing with your debt, the greatest trouble you've got of all. Turn in your, your Bibles to page 901. It's Psalm 90 by Moses. And here is, you know, it's a unique thing in the Psalter. We get a, we get a prayer of Moses. And here Moses is undoubtedly an old man. Been through a lot, a lot of troubles, you know, troubles of his own sin. He was a murderer, uh, troubles of having to flee polit from political oppression, troubles of facing Pharaoh, troubles of having the church want to kill him. I mean, this guy had all kinds of troubles. And let's, let's just look at what he says. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So you see, when you're going to deal with your own troubles and your own mortality, you begin to see the uniqueness of God. You begin to put your dependence upon Him. That's the reason we want to face our brutal facts and what you can't control. Because you begin then more to look to Him. That's exactly where Moses starts. And notice the background of this, verse 3. You turn men back to dust, saying... Return to dust, O sons of men. In other words, Moses is saying, this is not an accident. God, you decreed this. You're turning us back to dust. For a thousand years in your sight, or like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. He's saying, Lord, you're mowing everybody down. You're taking them out of here. So he attributes this to God. He doesn't say, God, I know that if you could control this, you'd do something about it. I know that you really love all people and you're kind and good and you would never take anybody in death. It's just an accident. You can't control it. No, he says, Lord, you're the one who says, turn back to dust. You're the one who mows the field, sweep us, sweeps us away. And here's why, verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. Folks, deal with the anger of God. He is angry. He's angry at sin. And we are sinners. So in our flesh, there is no good thing. It's under, it's under the condemnation of God. We're not under the condemnation of God because we are not our flesh. We have a soul that's been redeemed if we're in Christ. But our flesh is still under condemnation. That's the reason our flesh is going this way and our souls are going this way. One day they'll get reunited and they'll both go this way. But there is wrath to be dealt with. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That is, even my thoughts come before you, Lord. They're all judged. They're condemned. 
All our days pass away under your wrath. There's a description of life on this world, on this earth. We're living life in an environment where God's wrath is resting upon it. That's the reason for all these troubles. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we had the strength. Yet their span is but what? Trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and we fly away. You know, I'm aware of this with when my grandbaby's starting to come into this world, you know? And I realize they're not going to be very old when I, when I check out of here. I'm really not going to get to know them very well as adults. It kind of makes you sad, doesn't it? There's sadness everywhere you look around. Separation from people. Separation from life. Separation from relationships. Who knows, verse 11, the power of your anger. In other words, Moses is saying this anger is so vast, no one can even measure it. We don't, we don't have the moral capacity to understand the depth of God's anger. Who knows that power? For your wrath is as great as the worship or the fear that is due you. Now look at verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Here's where it is. Face the brutal facts. Get to the worst fact of all. You're dying. Now, Lord, teach us to realize that 70 or if by strength 80 are our days, that's what we've got. Teach us to number them. Teach us to realize it's coming to an end very soon so that what? We may gain wisdom. Wisdom comes from facing the brutal facts. That's what Moses is saying. And then he cries out, Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. He's saying, Lord, is this all there is? No. Let up, O Lord. And what's the final let up? It's when Jesus Christ comes back and gives eternal life and removes sin from us and all of our troubles. It's coming. And that's the reason for the human cry. Relent, O Lord. Continue to cry out to Him. Come, Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, satisfy us in the morning. When is the morning? It's the morning of the dawning of the new day when Jesus Christ comes. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You see, Moses won't give up. He's not getting to go into the promised land. He's faced all these troubles for 120 years with these wicked people who continue to rebel and want to overthrow their, their leaders. He's had all kinds of problems in his life, but he won't give up. On joy, satisfy us with joy. He's not going to give up because it's been put into his heart. And that's the reason the human heart continues to cry out for this to get fixed. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. There's trouble again. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now back to Ecclesiastes. You see what's happening? The reason Koheleth is going over this and over this, talking about our troubles, is so that our hearts are properly shaped to cry out for God's grand finale, for the grand conclusion. Everything in this book is straining toward the end of the last chapter, where, where alone we get the synthesis from the thesis and the antithesis. The thesis is we're longing for joy. The antithesis is the world won't give it to us. And the synthesis is at the very end when finally we see what the answer is. But you don't really understand salvation. You don't understand God. You don't understand His grace until you face the brutal facts around you. There are troubles everywhere. You're not going to, to avoid the grave no matter who you are, how good you are, how powerful you are. And look at verse 3b. This is C on our outline. We can't avoid evil in this life. You cannot avoid evil in this life. No matter how good you are, how honest you are, how well you run your business, it's, it's going to nab you. And some of you have your religious convictions all stirred up when you have financial problems or when you have deep bereavement in your life. It just rattles your cage. Is there really God? Does He really love His people? And... Koheleth is saying, of course, I'm telling you, this happens to good people, you know, God's people, righteous people, as well as the wicked. Everybody's going to uh, face evil. He says, he says uh, in, in verse 3, the hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. There is madness in their hearts while they live. And after they, afterward, they join the dead. In other words, he's saying, life stinks and then you die. Uh, and you're facing all this onslaught of evil from people. And if you look at the, 
the crash we've been going through, you know, the past nine months. What, what caused it? It's evil, greed, corruption. And it, it's going to affect us all, always will. So don't let that rattle your theology. That should confirm your theology. You know, I saw in the paper this past week uh, an article that uh, kind of made me laugh because, you know, we were talking about our, our names and our reputations. I think it was last week or week before. And I saw this little article about Woody Allen. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, Woody Allen is one of my favorite little cynics. You know, there's just this little Jewish guy who just can't, you know, can't do it with the women, just can't get it going, and life's not working out. He's always trying to figure out God, and he's so honest and candid. Uh, but he's, as you know, he's got all kinds of problems, uh, and it goes to his own spiritual and religious life. You know, he doesn't know the Lord. Anyway, Woody Allen is filing suit against American Apparel, Inc., because they're using some his image on billboards, and they didn't get you know permission. And he doesn't like his face on billboards. And if I had a face like that, I wouldn't want a billboard either. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but he doesn't he doesn't like his name and his face out there. So he's suing him uh, for ten million dollars. Now here's the interesting thing. Here's American Apparel Inc.'s defense. They're getting Mia Farrow, you know, his former wife, and her adopted daughter, you know, that. Woody Allen had an affair with. I think he ended up marrying her. And he's getting uh, the guy at Hustler Magazine. What's his name? Uh, yeah, you should have known that name so fast. Uh, <laughs> so I caught you. I caught you. Uh, that was Taylor. Taylor, right here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Flynn. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and American Apparel Inc. is getting these people to come to court and testify that Woody Allen's name isn't worth $10 million. <laughs> and, you know, they're going, to take, they're going to bring out all the junk on Woody Allen to prove that his name's not worth crap, you know. So forget $10 million. And I'm thinking, what if someone did that to me? <laughs> you know, it wouldn't take a whole bunch of high-priced lawyers. I'd tell you, we could do this real fast with just a few of you in this room. Uh, and how about it? There's evil in this life. There's evil in your history. There's evil everywhere. We're just swamped with it. You know, if you can't face that, you're not going to face life. You're really not going to live a meaningful life, which is the whole point of this thing. Meaningless, meaningless. Well, where do you get meaningfulness in meaninglessness? We're going to show you. But unless you see that it's not in the evil that's in this world, you're not going to find meaning. So you can't escape your troubles. They're everywhere. You swim in it. And uh, if you think you can, you can avoid it, you've got big, bigger problems than we can even discuss. Now, secondly, so what do you do? Now, verse 4 through 10 gives us an answer, a little bit of an answer. It hints at the ultimate answer. But the first thing Koheleth is doing here is to show us, if you just look around the world and look at some common sense, you can get some answers. And we're going to get the ultimate answer at the end of this book. But don't skip the subordinate answers. Uh, don't skip the minor answers. Don't just go, you know, don't just wait for heaven. Don't just wait for your death. That would be cynical. And what Koheleth has been teaching us, the main answer is it's in the future. We are people of hope. And when we use the word hope, we usually think of the blessed hope. Of course, that is the big hope. That's at the very end. But there is a kind of hope that suffuses this wicked world because we have the ultimate hope. And Koheleth has been very careful about showing it to us so that we don't live like a bunch of pessimists or cynics, nor do we give up on relationships or the things that can be enjoyed in life. So let's look at what he says in verse 4. He says, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Okay, there you have it. There is a hope for anybody who's alive. That's good to know. So even in this troubled world, where's my hope? Well, first of all, A, realize that living beats dying. And, you know, we think of, he says even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Let me, let me say here, we think of dogs as being cute, you know, little puppies, furry things that you can pet and hold in your lap or, you know, go out and play with outside and they'll chase the frisbee and all this. That's not what dogs were 
in, in this period. Dogs were desert, uh, scavenging, pretty useless animals. And they were, they were also violent. So dogs were dogs, you know. They, they were nothing. And he says, look, lions are regal. They're powerful. They're the king of the forest. It's great to be a lion. But I'd rather be a live dog than a dead lion. <laughs> you know, you could say, uh, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but you'd rather be a live Sandy Wilson than a dead Jack Kemp. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. You know, I mean, it'd be great to be Jack Kemp. You know, be that smart, that powerful, and that useful. And that. But he's gone. And you, you can think of all, all kinds of great figures. Isn't it amazing? You can be a really great figure and very powerful, very useful. As soon as you're dead, gone, nothing. It's better to be... It's better to be a nobody and be alive. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, look, if you're reading this, you're alive. <laughs> so it's better off for you to be you instead of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's dead. He's not here anymore. So it's better. You've got hope. You're alive. And, and sometimes we forget that. Life is worth something. So look at, look at verses 5 and 6 and see how he says, Look, in case you don't believe me, can we just rehearse this for a minute? Can, can we just look at what it's like to be dead? <laughs> this is so funny. I mean, nobody knows because nobody's been dead and come back and written. But this guy's kind of going through it. You know, Kohelet is saying, now, the living, they've got a problem. The living's got a problem. We've already discussed this. The living have to live under the shadow of death. They know they're going to die, and that's a big problem. That's a big burden for living people. But look what he says in verse 5. The dead, they don't know nothing. <laughs> that's their problem. They don't know anything. And then he says, for the dead, there's no reward. They can't, they can't achieve any reward. They're out of here. And look at this. We, we forget them. We've already discussed how we forget dead people. So these people are already forgotten. They're out of it. They're out of the equation. Whatever company you founded and built up to $3 billion of income, you know, on the, on, the top, on the bottom line and more on the top line, whatever. You do all these huge things, you're out of here, guess what? Someone's going to take that organization over and run it without you, and you're forgotten. You're, your presence is no longer significant whatsoever. And he says all of their emotions, their love, their hate, their jealousy, everything that was part of their viscera, their being, the way they affected people, vanished, gone. And never again will they take part in anything on the face of the earth. He's saying, hey, guys, could you start with this? You're alive. You've got hope. You are participating. Something's going on here. And don't forget it. And then you'll notice in verses 7 through 10, he says, okay, so what do you do? You make the best of it. So people who are following Christ are not just not only people who are waiting for the ultimate solution. We are waiting for the ultimate solution. That's one of our distinctive traits. We're a people who wait. And we wait expectantly. We wait confidently. And we wait joyfully. We don't just wait passively. We engage. And when you really believe things are going to work out in the end, it doesn't make you passive. It makes you active. That's what Kohelet is saying. Let's, let's learn from, from the pagans. They get active. Why should we be less active? In fact, what's very interesting in verses 7 through 10 is that uh, we've talked maybe when we were studying Genesis, and we may have mentioned it here before, there's an ancient document called the Gilgamesh Epic. It's about Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh, in one, on one occasion, is going to the Garden of the Gods. And the message that Gilgamesh gets is very similar to this right here, verses 7 through 10. Uh, he's, you know, the, the, the gods say, why don't you just eat, be happy, drink, be merry, have sex with your wife, and, you know, just make the best of it. And what Koheleth is saying is everybody knows that you need to engage life and, and be thankful for it. Even the pagans know this. So he's, he's using some common literature they would have been familiar with. And he's saying, let's walk it through. First of all, eat your food. You know, why, why should anybody outdo you? You say, well, because I'm 340 pounds. That's why. So, of course, there's a limit. 
But you know what? There are things you can eat that don't have 4,000 calories in them. I noticed in the, paper, in the article in the paper this, this week in USA Today, there's a survey about the average amount of sleep that certain nations get and the amount of time we spend eating. And they've you know, ranked us all you know, in the Western world. And you know who's winning this? You know who's getting more time in bed than anybody gets? The French. The French. They're beating us out on this. You know, they're staying in bed longer. Guess who's staying at table longer than any of us? Once again, the French. Now, I ask you, why should the French be outdoing us on this? More sleep, more time at table, you know, and just enjoying, you know, another glass of wine. I don't understand this, why the French are beating us. The USA is way on down the list there. So let's pick up the average. Eat your food. Enjoy what God gives you. Keep the calories down. You know, get plenty of exercise, but be thankful for your food. It's a good thing to enjoy what God has given you. Drink your wine. He says, drink your wine with a joyful heart. And obviously there are other passages in the Bible you need to be aware of. You know, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Okay, so keep those two verses together. Don't make this your life memory verse. All right. <laughs> Honey, I found it. Finally found it. It's... Ecclesiastes 9-7a, here's my life verse. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. There it is. It's all life. Of course, you must contextualize it. But he's saying, look, be grateful for the small things. And, you know, okay, some of you Baptists, I know you're going to give me an email after this, but you know the difference between Episcopalian and a Baptist. Episcopalian waves to you in the liquor store. Uh, <laughs> So I'm not saying get drunk. I'm not saying, you know, but watch out for legalism. You know what's happened in so much of American evangelicalism? We took what some of us need as a personal discipline. You know, I have one myself on, on alcohol consumption. Some of you would be better off doing it too. But we took something that's a personal discipline for a few of us, and then we tried to make a rule for the whole church. And the Bible just won't support that. And the Bible says you must be careful to believe everything the Bible says and obey it, and you must be very careful not to add to it. So let's be very careful in both directions. Both reflect a humility and a submissiveness to the Word of God. So let's not judge one another on what we eat and what we drink. We can judge each other's behavior when we drink too much, and we should let each other know about it, but not drinking itself. And notice he says, thirdly, just get happy. <laughs> Celebrate life. Why do I say that? Well, Verse 8 talks about white clothing and anointing your head with oil. And that just means have a party, enjoy life, celebrate, be happy. The opposite of that would be sackcloth and ashes. There are times for sackcloth and ashes. Sometimes we don't know how to, how to, how to experience sackcloth and ashes. We need to learn how to grieve. I, I admit that. But I believe we also need to learn how to rejoice. I was with a Jewish friend of mine one time, and we were at, <clears throat> we were at a, a Protestant wedding, which I'm at a lot. And she said to me, y'all's weddings are so boring. <laughs> Where's the music? Where's the dancing? You know? Where's the expressions of happiness? She said, y'all need to come over to Jewish weddings and learn a few things. Maybe she's right. Get happy. Wear your white clothing. Uh, and anoint your head with oil. And you don't need to convey to other people how sad you are and how troubled your life is. Learn how to cultivate the good things and express joy. Fourthly, have sex. Now, you notice I put in parentheses there a very important phrase, with your wife. If you don't have a wife, I'd recommend you not have sex because that's what the Bible says. But if you're a married man, uh, enjoy sex with your wife. Now, here's what you're going to tell me. I know this. I would. <laughs> but. Well, you know, you might need to learn something about feminine sexuality that doesn't begin with, Hey, honey, let me grab you. You know, usually begins with a few kind words, words of encouragement, deeds of kindness, taking out the trash, slowing down, all kinds of things, gentleness, kindness. So you may have to change the way you're having sex, but if you're able to have it, enjoy it and thank God for it. And unfortunately, so many Christians get married and, and they, they never realize that God actually likes sex that Jesus actually likes it with married people. And God actually commands it. Now, some of you, I know, you've picked up 1 Corinthians 7, 
as your life memory verse and show that to your wife. You know, don't abstain except for a season of mutually agreed upon prayer and fasting. Uh, some of you have made that your memory verse and shown it to your wife over and over again. I don't recommend that either. But it is a good verse. And God is showing us that just as much as God loves uh, celibacy among singles, and he does, you're honoring his presence. You're also honoring his presence when you have sex with your wife. And it's a good thing. He takes delight in it because it's showing the union between Christ and the church. It's almost sacramental. So enjoy it. Thank God for it. It's a gift from him. He, he's given it to you because he enjoys it. And if some of you have a view of sex as well, you know, it's good to have children. It's, that's good. it's just good for children, but I don't think you should really overdo it. You haven't read, been reading the same book I've been reading. Uh, you know, get on with it and have fun. That's part of the reason for sex. It is recreational within marriage because it, it expresses love and joy. And he says, work hard. And we have to watch out for workaholism. But generally, he says in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Go ahead. Work hard. We were made to work hard. There's joy in working hard. I love to work hard. The key is do your best to find something you love to do. Some people get to do that. Some people don't. 70% of Americans don't enjoy their work. I'm sorry. And I know a good number of you don't. I'm really sorry. But give yourself to it. You're working for your earthly master as unto the Lord. And one way in which you can increase the deepest joy in your work, regardless of what the work is or who with whom you're working, is to remember that the Lord himself is your boss. And if you can just work with that mentality over and over again, the Lord is my boss. The Lord is my Lord. The Lord is my master. The Lord is the one I'm serving today with this menial task, this dirty task, this difficult task. It is the Lord I'm serving. And if you cultivate that, you will eventually find that you are a hard worker because you're serving the Lord and you're seeking to please Him. And I think Koheleth is telling us that. Get engaged in work. Get engaged in the economy. Some of you who have been looking forward to 65 and then they moved it up on you, and 66, and you're moving up again, 67. You're like, oh, you keep reaching for that retirement. You're, oh, 68. Oh, okay, now I'll retire there. And then you just kind of check out. What are you doing? You're going to stop working? You're going to stop contributing? You're going to stop being a participant in, in the economy and in life and in the community? What are you thinking? You know, your life expectancy is going up, up, up into the 80s. What are you going to do for 15 years? Watch Jeopardy? Uh, <laughs> You know, and then you're trying to play golf and keep it going with all the arthritis raging in your body. And you're saying, oh, boy, I hope I can keep it going. You know, when I can't play golf anymore, life's over. What a waste. He doesn't say here, work for high pay. He just says work. And so isn't it, shouldn't you be a little bit more creative that if you don't, if you're not constrained by the structures of a normal work life that you hit from, you know, 25 to 67, Oh, okay, maybe now you can work without the same restraints and be a little bit more creative. Maybe you can give some of your work away and not be paid for it. Maybe you can help younger guys learn how to do what you did 30 years ago. But it's hard work. And come on, get on with it. Are you a cynic? Are you just going to try to get a few little earthly pleasures, superficial pleasures until you go home be with the Lord? That's cynicism. Koheleth is saying that's not wisdom. He says wisdom is work hard. Find a way to contribute. I appreciate it. I think it's necessary. And even when the troubles come, work hard in the troubles. And some of you who've been around the block a few times, you've seen certain depressions and recessions and difficult economic times. You know what? You have a library of knowledge that would probably be good for the younger guys. You know, you've seen, maybe you've not seen exactly this same thing, but you've seen some similar things. Bring your wisdom to bear on it. Make a contribution. Give people context and perspective. And encourage people to realize what you learned a long time ago, that it's in the tough times you make your best decisions. You're shaping your organization for the next decade by the decisions you're making now. And just as Rahm Emanuel, you know, chief of staff at the White House says, don't waste a good crisis. And Barack is not wasting a crisis. No, he's, he's, getting, he's getting some of his agenda through in a crisis. Well, what about you? You thought about how the crisis is affecting you and some decisions you need to make, whether they're family or work or community or all kinds of decisions. Make them. If, if the crisis is giving you a new opportunity, take it and learn how to work hard. 
whatever the circumstances. And to take the circumstances that you cannot predict or control and simply respond to those circumstances in the best way that you can. That's what a wise person does. And that is the way you build your library of knowledge. You learn how to respond wisely in a variety of circumstances. And I heard some of you say back in the 90s, boy, some of these young guys coming out, you know, all they've seen is massive success and, you know, increase of portfolios. And they'll never know how to, well, they're learning now. And if you're learning the hard lessons, learn them well. This is a very valuable time. And you may have other troubles in your life. Don't underestimate them. Learn how to make the best of it. It's not just waiting for the end. It's making the best of it. Now, thirdly, lastly, he says in verses 11 through 12, but don't get your hopes up. (laughs) Make the best of it. Give life what you've got to give it, but don't get carried away. Because you keep making these observations. For example, you know, Kohala says in verse 11, I've seen something else. (laughs) I'm not finished. I was talking about death. I'm not through. There's some other problems. Uh, First of all, success is elusive and unpredictable. It's elusive. It's unpredictable. The race is not to the swift. The fastest guy, I've noticed, is not always winning the race around here. And I've noticed that in warfare, it's not always the strong guy that wins. He, you may think he's worked out. He's, you know, think about those Olympic disasters when someone pulls a hamstring, you know, 10 yards out, out of the blocks. And they've been working for three or four years for that one dash, that one moment. And they are favored to win the race. And they pull the hamstring. It's just amazing. The battle does not belong to the strong. The race not to the swift. And he says, you know what? Wise people are not necessarily the richest people I see around here. People who have a lot, they're not the wisest nor the smartest. And, and the people who have favor, they're not the people who have studied the most. People look for so-and-so's opinion all the time. He hasn't even studied that much. And the guy who's really studied, knows all the literature, has carefully researched it, has done the statistics, no one even asks his opinion. And he's saying, I've noticed this in the world. It's screwed up is what he's saying. It's not just death. It's that, look at this, time and chance. You say, I didn't know that the Bible taught that chance happens. Well, there is no such thing as chance, actually. But what he's doing is using common secular vernacular and saying, you know what they're saying seems to be true. It's just time and chance. It happens to us all. And you can't predict it. You can't control it. Uh, It was interesting uh, our own Tom Hutton, you know, was in the paper this week in the business section. You know, he, he did some big-time punting, you know, University of Tennessee, Philadelphia Eagles and so on. Good article on Tom. And then at the end of it, you remember, did you read the last line? He says, you know, the tragedy is that 80% of the guys I knew in the NFL are now broke. You know, you're looking at these <coughs> enormous salaries these guys are earning, you know, for carrying leather around the field. <laughs> you know, they're earning these huge salaries and in a few years, gone. And the battle doesn't belong to the strong. And it's just amazing how success appears to be falling upon certain people and it really doesn't. And Koheleth is saying, I've noticed this. And then he says, secondly, uh, in verse 12, trouble will come unexpectedly. Nobody knows when trouble's going to come. Now, he may may be be speaking about death here, but I think he's speaking about all kinds of troubles. That you you don't know when it's going to come. No man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. You don't know. I wonder how many of you really predicted what was going to happen with the stock market last fall. Well, let, let me answer the question. I I asked, not my broker, but uh, I'm the uh, co-executor for my dad's little estate. And uh, so I noticed some things were happening to our account. And I, uh, so I have a little conversation, you know, with a bank guy. And I said, well, just tell me in all your portfolios you're managing, I said, how many, how many people, how many of your clients <coughs> changed their, their prospectus uh, last winter? I was asking this in the fall. He said, oh, gosh, he said, almost nobody. And he said, the two or three who did, they think they're geniuses. (laughs) But, you know, basically nobody knew. And you don't know when it's going to hit. So what do you do with all this? 
What's, what's the bottom line? Let's, let's ask the big so what question, okay? You know, we come to the Bible and we say, I thought the Bible had good news. <laughs> I, thought this was, I thought Christianity was going to be fun. I thought it was going to give me a little uplift. <laughs> well, it does. But don't look for ultimate happiness in this life. As we say, all of this is leading us toward a conclusion uh, at the end of, of uh, chapter 12. And you, you're just not going to be able to lean with all of your weight on your career, on your happy marriage, on the success of your children, on the enjoyment you get from your work. Don't lean on it too much. It's, it's all vanishing before your very eyes, the Bible says. And you would be very unwise not to notice this. So keep your eyes open to troubles all around you. So there's a, there's a minor key. It actually needs to be expressed in worship, personal worship and corporate worship. Americans are not always good at expressing it. But that minor key needs to come out as well as the major key. So Easter always is in context of a troubled world. And don't lose your context. Don't just get too happy on us and act as though, oh, the world's just great. It's not. Don't look for ultimate happiness in this life. But secondly, say thank you for every good gift. Because there are good gifts. And the Bible says every good gift comes from above. And God is giving good gifts in the midst of a troubled world. Now, here is the great irony of it all. Trouble itself ends up being a gift. So thank Him for the food and the wine and the job of the wife. But when you come to understand God's providence in your personal life and His strategy and His control and His predictability, His plan for you, you begin to grow up and thank Him even for the troubles. Let me give you the classic example in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This would be page 1876. 1877, rather. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul is talking about in this context all the things that cause us to lose heart. And look what he says about troubles. He says, therefore, verse 16, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 16, therefore we do not lose heart Though outwardly we are dying, we are wasting away. Now look at this. Yet inwardly. So the Apostle Paul says, okay, outwardly our bodies are in this world and those bodies are under wrath and they're falling apart and they're wasting away. Yeah, lots of reasons for sadness. Face the brutal facts on and on and on. Keep feeding the body, but you're never going never gonna to be able to keep it in this life. It's wasting away. But inwardly, what inwardly? We are being renewed day by day. He's saying outwardly wasting, inwardly renewing, getting stronger, getting younger, getting more vital, getting more vibrant, inwardly all the time. And he says, for our light and momentary troubles. Light and momentary? Light compared to the weight of the glory that's coming to us. Momentary compared to the eternal glory, the eternal pleasures. So if you compare it in terms of weight or extent, you can say honestly, the worst troubles in this life are light by comparison, momentary by comparison. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. They're actually accomplishing something. They're not wasted. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So here you, you have the message in the, in the Scriptures that we don't just endure our troubles. We don't just tolerate them. We don't just succeed over them. We actually benefit from them. So the message of Koheleth is, first of all, look around and see that you live in a miserable world that is doing a number on your outer nature and you're not getting through this world with that body. It's not, it's not going with you. But at the same time, realize that the buffeting on your body and, and on your soul in this life is actually doing something good for you when you're in Christ. You must be in Christ because you have a new heart. You've given, been given a new heart, a living spirit in Christ. And now the buffeting that you take on the outside is actually renewing and expanding the heart that God has given you. 
and it's achieving eternal weight of glory. And then he says in verse 18, Therefore we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the wind and the waves, but we fix our eyes on what is unseen. So Peter fixed his eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and he didn't sink anymore. We fix our eyes on Christ on eternity at the right hand of the Father where he's seated there. And we find that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we focus our eyes beyond and through the troubles without ignoring them. That's the trick in facing the troubles in this world. And lastly, on the so what, we wait. We do wait. We wait patiently. We wait while we work hard. We wait while we're enjoying our wine and our food. We wait while we're having sex. We wait while we're serving people. We wait while we're helping the poor. We wait while we're willing to lay our lives down in battle. We wait while we do everything in life vigorously and actively. We're still primarily waiting for the end that will come to us at the end of Koheleth. But Koheleth is showing us you can't really understand the ultimate without dealing honestly with the penultimate, which is the life that we face in this world, which is full of troubles. Let us pray. Father, thank You for every good thing You've given us. And this morning with a biblical perspective, a perspective shaped by Your sovereign Word, we would even thank You for our troubles. For we know that we're being shaped by them. And we are being expanded by them so that we have even larger capacity to enjoy the eternal glories that will one day be ours. We pray that You'll continue to give us perspective about our troubles so that we neither deny those troubles nor resent You for them, but rather we embrace the battle in which we're now engaged with hope, not only because we're living now, but because we shall always live. We shall never die. We shall never be a dead lion or a dead dog. We shall always be alive because of what You've done through Your Son, Jesus Christ. So with this hope, Lord, may we triumph today as we engage life as men who have a Savior who came here for 33 years and engaged life on the face of this earth and who went to be with You at Your right hand, O God there to prepare a place for us. So enable us, God, to walk in His steps. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents. Yes.